Good, uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Todd Priestley. And uh, recently, my wife and I had uh, Andrew and Robin over for dinner to our house. And um, we just had a delightful discussion, had a great dinner, had a great time together. And um, one of the things that we talked about is from the background from my wife and I, Georgia and I come from, we come from what I loosely call the Anabaptist tradition within the church. And I came from the Churches of Christ for 25 years. And for the first 10 years of that, all we sang was a cappella music. And that's, that was it. And we were, we were telling Robin and Andrew just how special that really was to us and how we kind of miss it, you know? It's not like I was trying to, wasn't like I had some sort of agenda to try to get the church to do it or something like that. But, but you know, of course, Andrew with that big brain of his, you know, got thinking and then I got the phone call, hey man, why don't you come up and lead some songs for us? And I'm like, Andrew, I'm not a song leader, but of course, in the Churches of Christ, you actually were song leaders because everybody sang. Bad singers became good singers, good singers became great singers. People who never led a song in their life began to lead singing because it was really just part and parcel of the church and the life of the church. And it's an element of the Anabaptist tr tradition that's very beautiful because you learn to use your body as an instrument, you know? We would sit around after devotionals on Friday night. We'd have 50 college students sit around in a, in a circle. We'd sing songs to each other for two hours. It's just unbelievable, you know? But it's such a wonderful, wonderful uh, dynamic within the church. And if you could open your Bible, if you have one, to Ephesians chapter 5. And we'll read a passage here. Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 18, it says, And do not get drunk on wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and make, making melody to the Lord with your heart. And the thing about it is, in, in many of the, the Anabaptist churches, and, and ours was no exception for the first 10 years I was there, we really made the mistake of making a law out of this. You know, men are awfully good at that. And so we made a law out of it. In other words, if you sang with an instrument, then you were wrong. You know what I'm saying? In other words, that's why our worship, we didn't have any, any instruments. And if you did, you were, I mean, we thought you were in some, you know, serious danger with the Lord. And so nobody, you know, we never used instruments. And of course, most of us have come to terms with the fact that that's an incorrect conviction. It's not a matter of either or. In fact, I'm not even too sure that this passage is even discussing uh, worship per se. I think a better example for this is when Paul and Silas are in prison. And they're singing back and forth to each other to encourage each other, which I'm sure they needed a lot of it. You know what I'm saying? They're in prison, they're in trouble, and it says they sang psalms back and forth to each other. And I think that's more of, of really what it's all about anyway. It's not even a matter of worship. It's just a matter of a, a part of the body of the life of the church. And it's just a dynamic that we can bring in. And it's a very, very beautiful thing. And I, I told Andrew, I said, well, I want to bring somebody up who really knows how to do it. And he said, no, hey, the whole point is just have, you know, and that's really how it was in our old church where just average people led the singing, you know, which is that kind of thing. And so we can all sing. So why don't we stand on up? And uh, we're going to try a song here. Hopefully we'll hit, I'll hit the pitch properly. 
and uh, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna give it a shot. Uh, that's where you got those all those song sheets came from, and we're gonna do the first one on there. It's called the Steadfast Love of the Lord. It's a pretty short song, and we're just gonna try to go through it maybe two or three times, and uh, just follow along, and we'll see if I can hit the pitch. How does that sound? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in Him. Therefore I will hope in Him. And there you go. That was awesome. Thanks, Todd. Go ahead and have a seat. Um, we're going to have an opportunity to do some more singing like that after, uh, after we receive communion. So I hope that um, maybe we may start making this a little bit of our practice together every once in a while, change up what we're thinking. Hey, this, um, let me pray for us. And then um, I want to share a few things. So God, we thank you now for how you've gathered us here um, in faith. And we pray that in doing that, you would build us up in love. And so being built up, we would then be equipped to be sent out in hope. We know that you, by your spirit, are always doing this. You build your church. You gather us, build us, and send us in faith, love, and hope. And so we pray that this morning, we might miraculously become your church. Help us to preach this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. So, um, banquet service, as you've heard, we're gonna have a great meal. If you're visiting with us, we're really glad you're here, and we want you to participate with us downstairs in a common meal, and I I'll share a little bit more about that, but essentially, the banquet service is a chance for us to share in a common meal, in fellowship, in caring, in love for one another, so that we might grow as a connected body, a life shared together. Some of the best conversations, I have this conviction, some of the best conversations happen around the dinner table and in long car rides, right? And so we're going to have an opportunity to do that together. But we're going to have a spaghetti meal this morning. And I don't know about you, but when our um, leadership team decided we would do a spaghetti meal, and I was thinking about that, the first thing that came to my mind was Lady and the Tramp. I'm a coming, I'm a... What's the matter? Somebody's a make the apple a fool with... Oh, oh. oh hello, 
Butch, where have you been so long? Hey, Joe, look who's here. Well, what do you know? It's a Butch. Hey, 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 Joe. <laughs> Joe, bring some bones for Butch before he eat me up. Okay, Tony. Okay. Bones are coming up. Watch this. Hey, Joe, look. Butch, he's got a new girlfriend. Well, a son of a gun. He's got a cockerel Spanish girl. <laughs> She's pretty sweet kiddo, Butch. You take Tony's advice and settle down with this one, eh? <laughs> this one? This one. This one. Oh, Tony, you know. He's not a speaking English pretty good. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> now. First, we fix the table. Here's your bones, Tony. Okay, bones. Bones? What's the matter for you, Joe? I break your face. Tonight, Butcher, he's get the best in the house. Okay, Tony, you're the boss. Now, tell me, what's your pleasure? A la carte? Dinner? Aha. Okay. Hey, Joe. Butcher, he says he wants two spaghetti speciale. Heavy on the mitzvah. Tony, dogs don't talk. He's a talker to me. Okay, he's a talker to you. You the boss. Mamma mia, manger you can ever sit here. Now here you are, the best spaghetti in town. So when the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, that's amore, right? That's love. What is this thing called love? And love, that's an interesting word. When you hear that word, what do you think of? Do you think of a scene like this? It's funny how that word has so many meanings in our own language. We use that word to describe a whole set of, a range of relationships and assumptions and interactions and, and into, um, uh, intonations. So we talk about love. We, we use that word love to describe the relationship with our spouse or our lover, right? But we also use that word to describe our relationship with our children, or our relationship with our friends, 
or our relationship with community. We talk about that word, we use that word to describe our relationship with other things too, objects, situations, things like food. Who loves food? Or uh, activities, or nature, or sports, or sports teams and franchises playing in the Super Bowl, and quarterbacks who seem to be brought down from heaven. <laughs> love, it's a many splendid thing. What is this thing called love? Isn't that interesting that one word covers so many different ideas and concepts and relationships? And yet I'm willing to bet when, we, when you hear the word love, by instinct almost, you immediately think of something like Lady and the Tramp. Because there's something about that, right? That attraction, that impulse, that desire, that longing for another that, that, um, that seems to fill us and complete us and save us and give us meaning and purpose in life. Where you're lost in that love, that romantic desire for another. Mmm, see the moon shining up above. Mmm, what a lovely time to be in love. Mmm, I want to linger a little longer. I'm channeling Peter here right now. <laughs> yeah, he said, but on key. <laughs> Why is it that we instinctively turn to that idea, that image in our mind about love? What is this thing called love? You know, it's interesting that in the New Testament and throughout the, all of Scripture, love is a major theme that runs through the course on the plot line, a major plot line that runs through the course of God's history with his people. It's like this deep impulse that drives the whole story, the trajectory of God and his relationship with his people. And Jesus, more than anyone, spoke about that love. So I want to share with you, and we begin by reading a passage from John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Um, yeah, don't worry about all, uh, everything. We'll just do 34 and 35. Um, where, here's the context. Jesus has just spent this, uh, had come into the world and his whole life had been defined by this relationship, this selfless orienting around his father, the seeking to glorify the father and in turn the father glorifying his own son and the two of them mutually in their, self, or their other glor, um, selfless glorification of the other are united with the spirit. At the very heart of God is this self-emptying love that seeks to glorify the other and Jesus has just, um, the table has been set, Judas has just left on, an, um, on the task of uh, betraying Jesus and Jesus then speaks to his disciples and articulates a new frame of being, a new way of interacting with one another that he defines as a new commandment that he's giving them. And so in, verses, uh, in verse 34, he says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
Now that is fascinating and I think raises a number of different questions. I mean, what is this new commandment? Why is he giving it? Why is he saying this at this time on his way um, to the cross? And yet the, the question I want to ask us this morning is, when Jesus said that, when he said, a new commandment I give you, love each other. Love each other as I have loved you. What do you think they had in mind? What came to the disciples' mind? What popped into their frame of reference as they had experienced a life shared with Jesus, three years walking and and ministering in Galilee and another three or four weeks in Jerusalem, intense, in a um, pressurized environment? How did they experience Jesus' love in their life? I don't know the answer to that question. None of us were there, right? And they don't necessarily speak about that. But I wonder, I hypothesize what it was like to share life with Jesus. For he had gathered this group of people around him and he had done that with a purpose so that he might share his life, give his life, pour his life into them that they might experience, not like through that experience of life shared with him that his message and his mission might be imparted to them and then they might be sent in his name. Jesus walked and he talked with them. He prayed and he cried and he laughed and he celebrated and he ate and they goofed around, I'm sure. And all of that was done, life shared together in this living fellowship of love. I don't know how, what came to their mind when he said to them this, love each other as I have loved you, but I'm pretty convinced that what they experienced in his midst was the kind of love of a whole other quality, different than anything that he had experienced up until that point. What is this thing called love? And how are we to understand it? You know, the Greeks spent more time than anybody in parsing out the the, uh, intricacies of this theme, this thing called love. For the centuries leading up to uh, the time of Jesus and that Gre- the Greco-Roman world wrestled with the concepts of love more than any civilization that you could probably come across. And you know this because where we use one word to describe all these different relationships and set of ideas, they would come up with a number of different words. Isn't that interesting? They had a number of different words and a, that um, we would then translate love because they were interested in parsing out and thinking through all the different relationships and the instincts and the desires of our hearts. But one word more than any reigned supreme. During the uh, centuries leading up to Jesus' own life, we have all these ancient texts from the Greek civilization and they would spend more, uh, um, of all the words that describe love, the one that reigned or came through the most clearly was a word called eros, eros. It's where we get the word erotic. But it meant so much more than just erotic. And they would write treaties on this, theological or um, philosophical treaties. Plato spent a huge time in his um, book, The Republic, on that, that theme, that topic. Or they would write hymns, they would write plays, they would write sonnets. They, they were fascinated by this idea of love, K 
captivated or encapsulated by this word eros. So what does eros mean? I drew this, I got, um, pulled some of the themes from Kittle's Bible Dictionary um, where he kind of, they chart out the, the history of this word in ancient civilization. And I want to share that with you now. Here's a few things that eros describes. Eros describes a general love of the world that seeks satisfaction wherever it can. An impulsive love defined by desire. It is its high, in its highest sense, um, well, let me say this, in its lowest sense, it, it was if anything, at least sensual, if not sexual. But in its highest sense, it is the upward impulsion of a man in his love for the divine. Eros seeks in others the fulfillment of its own life's hunger. Does that make sense? Are you tracking with me here? So Eros is this idea of one um, where you sit under the moon and you're captivated, captured. This impulse that seizes you, desire, longing for another object, another thing, another person. And in that seeking and that searching and that longing for that thing, an attempt to capture it and um, control it and appropriate it in your life, that it will bring fulfillment and satisfaction and happiness and joy and a sensual uh, experience of the world and life at, lived at its fullest. Does that make sense? This was the word that the Greeks spiritualized. They longed for, they thought of as the, its highest goal, its highest meaning. If Eros was operating, how many of us don't want to be seized and taken by love and moved and, and motivi- motivated by it and to see that same love in another's eyes? If eros was the most commonly used word to describe love in the Greek or the Greco-Roman world, there was another one in contrast to it. And it was one that we don't have a, hu- or a really great sense of how it was used during that time because it wasn't used very often. But what we know is this, it, it's the word agape. And that word agape um, makes a stark contrast to eros. Agape means a love which makes distinctions, choosing and keeping to its object. It is a free and decisive act determined by its subject. Agape relates to the, uh, for the most part to the love of God, to the love of the higher lifting up the lower, elevating the lower above others. It is a giving, active love on others' behalf. Do you see the contrast there? If eros is a general love of the world, agape um, makes distinctions. If eros seeks the satisfaction wherever it can, agape is a choosing and a keeping to its object faithfully. If eros is an impulsive love, um, impelled by desire and longing, almost captivated, agape is a free and decisive act determined by its subject. If eros, in its highest sense, is man's longing for, striving to rise up into the heavens to seek the face of God, the divine, agape relates, for the most part, to the love of God who stoops down and draws the lowly up. Eros seeks in others 
the fulfillment of its own life's hunger. Agape is a giving, active love, seeking the benefit of others on others' behalf. In other words, eros is a self-centered love where we seek love for our own sake. Agape love is a selfless love, seeking others for their sake. What I find interesting is that when the New Testament writers who had encountered and experienced the love of God poured out in their hearts through, in and with and through Jesus, when they gathered together to reflect on its nature and its characteristics, uh, who God is and what he does for them through his son, they never once used the word eros. You can't find it anywhere in the New Testament. When they sought to describe the love of God in Christ, they used agape love. And so they would say things like this. Love builds up. Love never ends. Love casts out fear. They would say things like, no greater love than this, than one would let, that one would lay down his life for a friend. Jesus, when he was describing to his disciples the kind of love that he had shown them and he was asking them to show one another, it was agape love. And so this community gathered by Jesus, called in his name, centered, called to center their life around him and then to love one another, they, as they experienced his love and when, as he said, hey, love one another as I have loved you, I don't know what they thought, what came to mind in those moments, but what is clear is as they reflected on his life later, they realized that the love, the qualitative love that he was showing them had a certain trajectory. The love that seeks the benefit of, the, of others has a trajectory that inevitably moves one towards the cross. <coughs> and that's how they made sense of the love of God in Christ. And so 1 John chapter three, the author of the, the Gospel of John then takes some time to talk to his community and speak to his community and help them think through what this meant for them to be, experience the love of God in Christ and then to share that with one another. And he reflects with them by saying this, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the, world's, the, has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You see, the gospel writer of John, who then writes to his community, has something to say that, that, that um, I think it's fascinating that 
when he works out the love of God in Christ, he works it out in real concrete ways. What does it look like for us to love each other well as Jesus has loved us? Well, if you have goods, if you have wealth, if you have money, and you see someone else in need, how can you not love them by giving to them, caring for them, helping them in that time of need? Do you see how it gets real granular, real concrete, real specific? That love worked out in the community requires action. Or later on, in, the, uh, in 1 John chapter four, he says this. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever lo- loves has been born of God and knows God. Everyone, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he, has, he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loves us, how also ought, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. What I find fascinating about this passage is that there is certainly a commandment given, a task put before the community of Christ. But that, that, that task flows out of the gift. It follows it, not, proce- not preceding it. Did you get that? When he says, we do not love first. We love one another because he first loved us. And so love is God's grace being poured out into our lives. And when you come to know that love, that grace, that concrete expression of God's disposition from all eternity on you, for you, for your sake, that self-emptying love that can only be found in the life of God. When you've experienced that love, then you're almost, uh, how can you not then respond in kind with one another? See, the task doesn't proceed the gift, it follows from it. And it's grace. And there's something about the way, and what's, what's interesting about Jesus' own words is there's something about the way in which when we, lo- when God's love poured out in our life is operated, uh, operative in his community, his people, the whole world will take notice. And they will know those, those people as his own and they will begin to come to believe the impossible, the impossible possibility that this figure hung on a cross for their sake is in fact the source of life. And that becomes our witness as we love one another. 
as Christ first loved us. So the task follows from the gift, the gift of grace, unmerited, undeserved love from the Father through the Son by the Spirit. So how can we not then give thanks, right? And that's why we gather around this table every Sunday is to remember, to remind ourselves of that grace poured out in our midst. We have all, um, we have an opportunity to experience that love and that grace once again. I think it's interesting that uh, the early church, they called this table a love feast. And they would meet together around a common meal. And in the midst of the meal, they would take bread and they would bless it and break it and say, this is Christ's body broken for you. Let's do this in remembrance of him. And in the same way, they, as they were sharing in the cup, they would say, this is the cup, the new covenant, Christ's blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me, he said. Other Christian traditions call this table the Eucharist, which means thanksgiving. Isn't that interesting? The table of God's grace, his charis, is known as the Eucharist, Eucharista, which means thanksgiving. So everything we do in our life together is a thanksgiving of his love poured out for us. Everything that we kind of create structures in our life together, the, our opportunities for us to experience that love worked out. When you go downstairs and have a meal together, that becomes an opportunity for us to learn to love each other well. Did you know that? To interact with new people, learn their stories, find out why they're here, what's going on, what God, how God is showing up in their life. When you participate in some of the other gatherings that we have, we have these new brochures that we're um, passing out or that will be available on the tables downstairs that will describe some of the ways that you can get connected and plugged in to community. One is called connect gatherings. We used to call these neighborhood gatherings but we thought that was a little confusing, so we simplified it to connect gatherings. Opportunities for you to meet with other people around other interests and get to know them. Like, they're great, they're perfect, they're awesome for you to be involved, but the purpose of them is for you to have an opportunity to grow in love for one another. Or, and maybe even uh, um, as you develop friendships with each other, to participate in what we call house gatherings. Life shared in community, centered around Jesus as he gathers us, builds us, and then sends us. But all those structures that we try to put in place here at the sanctuary, their purpose is to serve that larger end of living out this new commandment, to love one another as Christ has loved us. And that is our witness. So this morning, I invite you to come, participate in his life. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. Dark cups are wine, 
light cups or juice. And as you do that, give thanks. Let's give thanks together for the love of God poured out in Jesus. And then let's worship, okay? Friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. I invite you to come. Will the servers come forward? So here, here's how this is gonna go, all right? You're gonna be invited. Um, we're gonna have a meeting right after this service for about 10 minutes that Peter's gonna moderate where we present our budget for the uh, new calendar year. And then it'll be short. It's just a presentation. Uh, if you want to stick around after the meeting and talk to a few people, the board and, and Peter and I and others will be up here. But we're gonna immediately then transition downstairs where we're gonna have a spaghetti dinner family style. Usually we do buffet, right? And everyone waits in line and goes through the buffet. But you're gonna be invited to go and find a table and sit down at the table and the food will be brought out to you and served to you, okay? And I would like it if you'd consider not just sitting with those that you know only, that's fine, but to find other people that you have yet not had an opportunity to meet. And there will be at the table a few different questions on some slips of paper that will be uh, conversation type starters that um, you can uh, interact with and discuss over the course of the dinner. And as well as some of the brochures that I mentioned that are connect gatherings and our house gatherings that, will, that describe some of the structures we've put in place to help facilitate us connecting with one another and being built up in love. And we just want you to check those out and see if any of them would be of interest to, for you to be a part of. Especially if, you, uh, like if you're new and you're wanting to get to know some people, those connect gatherings are really a great entryway uh, to making connections with, uh, with other people. And if you have developed some friendships and you're wanting to go a little bit deeper, we'd love for you to consider joining or starting a house gathering. And if that's on your mind, I'd love to talk to you after the service and help facilitate, make that happen. But you just gotta know this. You have to own it. In both circumstances, this doesn't just happen. We love because he first loved us and so we have to risk in light of that. We have to reach out and connect and share that love with one another. And these, these things are just a, a vehicle for you to experience the love of God in Christ. You know, when I said early on, I wonder what it looked like for his disciples to experience Christ's love, Jesus' love in their midst, and that we don't know. Well, maybe we do know. Maybe we see... Jesus showing up loving us every time we look around. And I love the, the fact that that agape love for most of its history up until the time of Christ didn't have much cachet in the culture at large. But you may not know this, but if you now go and do a search for a definition for agape, you'll find a ready-made definition and it'll say something like this. It'll say self-sacrificial love, unconditional love, spiritual love. And agape has made its way into our own English vocabulary. Isn't that interesting? You know how it happened? Because a group of people had experienced walking and talking and living life with Jesus and then were called to be sent by that. 
And they took that love to the streets to the point where people, uh, it changed the vocabulary of a whole civilization. And people came to know the, God's agape love for them in Christ. So I pray that that is true for us this morning and as a church going forward. So let me do this. Let me now send, uh, let me give you a benediction and then I'm gonna ask Peter to come up and lead our meeting, okay? So go forward from this, having been gathered in faith, built up in love, know that you are being sent in hope in the name of Jesus, amen.